welcome everyone to episode four uh, of study hall i figured you know start with a new segment you guys all know joseph right does everyone know joseph he's he's a nice uh friend of the pod and you know this week he sent me like a 17 paragraph like summary of like his thoughts of the podcast so i thought we'd we'd uh I thought we'd read these out and, uh, and and react to them a little bit as a way to hold us accountable, too, for our terrible takes. Like, we made some bad takes in the last episode. I feel like that's fair to say. Um, definitely the worst uh, takes in the, in the study hall's long history. So, I don't know. I'm going to read these, and, and you guys can just react. He said, all right, so these are Joseph's thoughts from the podcast. He said, Miller Moss is soft. He has gone to at least three different schools that I know of, transferred from Loyola. It's obvious that USC thinks he's soft and doesn't doesn't trust him either through the recruitment of Jackson Dart, who's the guy they're recruiting from Utah. The kid says he wants competition, but leaves from prep school to prep to prep school. I don't know. Just can't trust it. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Little LA native perspective. Um, what, what, what do you guys think about that? You know, we were talking about how Miller Moss was holding this entire class together. Joseph's out here bringing up the uh, exact counterpoint to that. I don't, I don't see an issue with them recruiting the guy out of Utah because at the end of the day, they already had two quarterbacks in this recruiting class. Now they're just getting another insurance quarterback. I, I don't see anything wrong with that move. I think it was with Miller Moss saying, you know, he's got this class. That was, he, he had to say that, but now what, what I'm hearing now, I'm a little skeptic. I'm, I don't know how I feel about this guy anymore. Yeah. It's just one Joseph's opinion though. I mean, we know, we know, if you know, Joseph, he's a friend of the pod. Basically he, I didn't introduce him that well, but uh, yeah, he's, he's uh um, he, he's a friend of the pod, one of our one of our proud listeners. He's listened to every episode. Good guy, um, Jimmy. What, what are your thoughts about this about Miller Moss? You know, I think that most of what Joseph says. Again, you know, I, I don't want to you know make it too personal and not invite the you know listeners into our our lives because that's the point yeah. of this podcast. Um, but Joseph is a class A idiot, um, <laughs> and most of what he says cannot be taken seriously. The funny whoa, thing is, bro, whoa. The funny thing is, and I don't, I'm not going to, you know, jump ahead of the other points he makes in this test because I also received the same exact text from him yeah. listing this, you know, two paragraph. We're all receiving it right now. We're all receiving it. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's classic Joseph. It's like that heartbroken paragraph on paragraph of text. And it's like, right. Hey man, I'm, I'm going to read half of that. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that you should try to recruit at least one quarterback every class, but considering how bad it's been at USC in terms of quarterback depth since Sam Darnold left uh, for the NFL, I have no opposition to getting a second quarterback in any class. Uh, it doesn't matter who the quarterback is. I mean, depth has clearly been a problem. And beyond some that being, you know, miracle games against Utah, like we're really not going to be able to survive on quarterback depth at yeah, the, the current rate. So I, I don't see anything wrong with us recruiting a second quarterback. And at the same rate, like Jake Garcia has been to two, three. Yeah. Like how many schools has he been to in the last year? Like Miller Moss. To be fair, that's a different situation. He's leaving. That's a different situation because he's leaving in order to play. It sounds more like Miller Moss was leaving to get a different situation. Like Jake Garcia wasn't able to play. Yeah, like like basically saying Miller Moss left because he had, he had to face some competition at prep schools and high schools. And how would he do? um at the next level if he's already if he's already ducking now you know i feel like yeah i don't know all right well that segues very well you what you said about having multiple quarterbacks in depth segues very well and i thought this was the best of joseph's thoughts that he sent me i thought it was insightful i, th I think it completely went against jimmy being an idiot but basically he really liked my take trevor denton's take i thought it was genius too 
Um, you know, about the Ricky Towns, Sam, Sam Darnold thing that I said last week, you know, bringing in a highly heralded guy and then a lower heralded guy, letting them duke it out, having the guy with his chip on his shoulder kind of keeps everyone accountable versus bringing in two prima donnas that maybe transferred to a bunch of different schools, been highly looked at since they were 13. So I thought that was genius. I don't think there's any need to comment on that one because we all know it's right. And, uh, you know, Joseph, a man of, of taste. Uh, the next one, uh, now this will bring me right back down to earth. He said, your Marshall take did not end well. For those that don't know, I said that uh, – <laughs> I said on the podcast that Marshall would beat USC. I think I said that they, uh, they, they deserve to be higher in the college football playoff ranking. Of course, they lost 20 to nothing to Rice in a game that I was actually at. Um, bizarre game to see. The quarterback threw five picks. I stand by this. The quarterback threw five picks. He was money all year long. Who could have predicted that? That's why they lost. I still think maybe Marshall would give USC a game. So I'm not fully uh, dying on my sword yet on that one. I think you said it best on air when you said that it's always a tough day when you lose to a carb. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you would you would certainly know uh, Marshall football better than than a lot of us. Uh, but that that was a really disappointing way to start our weekend of of rather adventurous picks and predictions. It didn't necessarily get much better, um, except for possibly Monday night, which we'll get to. Um, but that was definitely a tough way to start my weekend. It, it really really ruined my sense of exploration when it comes to takes when I saw Marshall just getting absolutely destroyed. I was embarrassed. I was appalled. Like I felt like, you know, I put my reputation on the line and and, and I failed. And, you know, I just want to apologize to all the listeners of this, this podcast. You know, I will vow. What did Tebow say? I will vow to never. What did he say? What did he say in, the, in his speech? Who cares? I'm not, I never him. letting his team down ever again. You will, you will never see a quarterback fight harder than I will. There's the you've never seen a team. You just like crying though. I hate Tim Tebow too. But like I thought that was gonna happen. Wait, do we have to like Tim Tebow? I feel like somewhere like in like oh seven, everyone was like, you have to like Tebow, and I've literally like said I hate Tebow, and people like people get mad at me, and like you know I'm sure he's a nice guy. Obviously he's a nice guy. Like I'm not out here saying Tebow's like 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 killing puppies or anything. He's obviously a great guy, but he annoys me. He annoys me. Trevor Denton, you need to take you need to take that back right now. As a Colorado native and a strong supporter of Tebow time, I I demand you take Why that. Are you back a supporter right of Tebow time though? Like what what about Tebow? I feel like well, he's annoying. So okay, so before uh, Peyton Manning came to Colorado and things started turning around, Tim Tebow was this shining gem of excitement that the Broncos really hadn't had, uh, especially at the quarterback position. Kyle Orton, Jay Cutler. Come on, Tim Tebow got in there. He had, I don't even remember how many comeback wins he had. It was six that year or something like that, sneaking us into the playoffs. You have the overtime, first play of overtime to Demarius Thomas over Ike Taylor against the Steelers. Tebow time is in essence what everyone as a football fan should love, the excitement. And it was perfect for a short time. And then it kind of fizzled out. You have his amazing time in college football. And I like him as an analyst too. I think he really gets to the point of what it means to be a college athlete. Yeah, I feel like he's good and great, like for the population of the country that likes wearing jorts and listening to maybe like a nice Nickelback CD. And if that's what you're into, I have nothing. I have nothing wrong with that. You like pre-order stuff from like the the Christian bookstore just to make sure you get it uh, ahead of time. I don't know. It's just not. Um, it's not for me. But let's let's get through this. We got a little sidetrack. We'll finish up J- Joseph's last thought. Uh, from listening to our podcast. I thought this was really the best one. I think this is a great way to bring it home. Um, if you listen to the last one, we did a draft of the best uh, football names of all time. Maybe we could even play back that that a little bit of that draft, just giving our editor, uh, who's Dan, stuff to do. When your kid comes to you and says, 
dad, I've been getting bullied. And you say, son, what's his name? The first thing that's going to come to your head is Tank Bigsby. Corn Elder. Corn <laughs> Elder. Uh, it's always, you know, you always love a good name that really just kind of perks your ears up. But he said, so we drafted the best football names. Um, we did a three-round draft with all of us. I think, you know, some highlights. I think we had DeBrickashaw Ferguson go. Um, I had, I think, Hercules Mata'afa. But he said one snub, and he said it was surprising because this is a USC football-focused podcast. He said he was surprised that no one drafted John David Booty. And now I'm disappointed about that. Absolutely an omission. And for Mr. Booty or, or, or Buttocks, I don't, is his proper name Buttocks? Davis Buttocks? To Mr. Davis Buttocks, I, I, I hereby apologize. Any other thoughts on that? I think that was, that was a smart point by Joseph. Uh, John David Booty, of course, great name. However, I had Jake Butt on my team already. We can't get too many of the, the backsides on my team. Uh, it really just puts a taste in everyone's mouth, if you, if you want to call it that. <laughs> oh, man. That was the stupidest, funniest thing I've heard that on this podcast. I got Jordan to just crack up. That was good. It, it connected immediately. It connected immediately right. for me. All right. Well, I'm. I mean, you know, I have LeGarrette Blunt on my team. Um, you know, we didn't – John David Booty, he maybe should have been drafted, but I will say a lot of good names to pick from. Like, Juju Smith-Schuster also didn't get picked up. I thought that was a little surprising. Like, that's an all-time just insane name. Like, I remember when I was first coming to USC, I was like, there's a guy named Juju Smith-Schuster. Holy it just crap. shows how, how tough it is to make, to make that names draft. You know, so many guys apply for it, and so many guys want to be in that name draft. Just like in real sports, not everyone can make it. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, exactly. You know, sometimes they say you're going to be a first round pick. You fall down to the seventh round. There's just so much competition, you know, well said. Um, let's get right into it with, uh, with USC football and things really heating up in the season. I feel like um, that win over Washington state, like, I, I don't know, this, this is just my perspective on it, but I feel like USC has gotten an, in, uh, an unordinary amount of exposure so far this year. Like I feel like everyone was talking about them with the 9am game. I feel like everyone was talking about them with, with the Sunday game against Washington State. Like, even if the new, even if it wasn't always positive, USC has been in the news this year. They went viral with the onside kick against Arizona State, and I feel like that's really helping them right now. And now, like, uh, just, you know, full disclosure, a couple of weeks ago, I said the playoff door was shut. You guys were still talking about it, but now I kind of want to open it back up. And the big reason I want to open it back up is because um, Ohio State, like, they've had, like, three games canceled since I first said that. So, like, what do you guys think? Like, does USC have a viable chance again? Um, to at least not necessarily make the playoff, but be in the conversation? I think they do. Uh, I mean, they do have this, they have the game against UCLA and then, you know, whatever happens with the Pac-12 championship, whether it's going to be against Colorado or just someone from the North. And if they can win those two and then see some other dominoes fall from uh, probably not Ohio state, but maybe like what, something happens with Florida or a and I, but I just, I think it's too tough, but I think it's going to get, we're going to have a better case than now and come two weeks time for sure. I think that, you know, it, it's interesting that you say like a viable chance. I think any, you know, not anyone, but like, you know, a, a good amount of that top 10 to 15 range has a chance. I think for USC, the permutations are just kind of ridiculous. When you really break it down, uh, there, you, you, you kind of start picking and choosing games or remaining matchups and you say, okay, you know, this switch has to flip that way. And, mm -hmm bing bang boom and and there's just so many things that would have to happen including usc doing what it doesn't do usually which is beat teams by a lot 
And we've seen them do that once, so I could hardly bank on them doing it multiple times. And they would have to do it pretty much for both the UCLA and the Pac-12 championship game against whoever that is, even Colorado, as as some people saw. Um, so I, I'd say that CFP isn't like a realistic shot. But my big takeaway from the game is is feeling confidence in this team and, and seeing kind of an effort that I really hadn't seen in my four years least against a team that wasn't Oregon State or an out-of-conference opponent, not named Notre Dame, you know what I mean? Like, it, it was exciting to see something of an old-school USC just, like, absolutely kicking a team while they're down uh, performance. And I think that'll go a long way to feeling confident that they can take care of us against UCLA and they can go to the Pac-12 championship game and win it and go to the Fiesta Bowl and, and end up with a New York Six berth, which realistically, entering the season, COVID or not, that's kind of the ceiling for this team in a lot of ways, uh, at least under Helton. So it, it's hard as a USC fan to feel too disappointed about that kind of track that we're on now. Uh, as far as playoffs go, no, I still don't think that there's really a realistic, yeah, you can talk about it. Jimmy was saying there's, there's a million permutations you can make. I, realistically speaking though, no, I, I don't think that the committee even wants anyone uh, in the Pac-12, especially with how few games we played. Uh, but that does bring up the point of uh, who deserves to be in and what it should take. I think that there's a uh, power five bias. I don't think that any uh, group of five team will ever make it to the playoffs. I don't think that it's possible for them. Cincinnati is playing their hearts out. Uh, Coastal Carolina as well just had a great game against BYU. And I think that there is, and this could maybe segue into a different conversation, but there's a massive issue with the college football playoff. There is so many things wrong with how they rank teams. Iowa State being seventh makes no sense. I do want to get back to USC because I wanted to kind of make this point about USC. So let's kind of go through the scenarios. Right now, Alabama's one, Notre Dame two, Clemson three, Ohio State four. So like how could USC realistically get in this, right? So Alabama, you would need to beat Florida, knock them out. Um, And then you would need Notre Dame to beat Clemson. That's probably the only shot just with the way things are, are happening right now. You need those two things to happen. You need Notre Dame to beat Clemson, knock them out. You need Alabama to, to beat Florida. And then beyond that, you're kind of choosing basically like Ohio State for one of those last spots and USC. And the thing that's really changed from the last couple of weeks when I said there's no chance for USC is that Ohio State has had three games canceled. So they're 5-0. and USC is 4-0. If the way things shake out, Ohio State has one more game in the Big 12 championship because the game against Michigan was canceled. So they could be 6-0. and USC could also be 6-0. and So what I'm saying is that if the criteria, the criteria for the college football playoff is supposed to be you take this season into account, you take it into a vacuum. But if you're not even including USC in that conversation as a 6-0 team versus a 6-0 Ohio State, then you are disregarding your own criteria. And this is not me saying that I think USC would fare well in the playoff because I'm, I, that's not what I'm saying at all. I don't think they fare well against Ohio State, Clemson, Notre Dame, or Alabama, just based on what I'm seeing. But I still feel like you have to at least include them in that because they will be potentially a Power 5 champion at 6-0. At and um, and I think they should be considered, but you don't hear that at all. And I feel like that's because of the Pac-12's perception. But if you're allowing perception to be included of a league to be included, then you're going against your own criteria, I feel like. But I, I would say that there is the difference of Ohio State has I, the win against Indiana, who's 12th ranked right now. That's that's a quality when USC doesn't have that yet. That's why I think it's important for USC. It would be really great if they in the Pac-12 get rid of the whole division for the conference. Play uh, Colorado. That, to get, yeah, to get play the Colorado. Team. That's the only – we need to play a ranked team or mm-hmm. else there's no reason why we should be in there. I, I think without playing Colorado, there 
the the path is going to be really tough and even a, a real conversation about getting that fourth spot is also going to be really tough because Washington State was that was tough to watch I just I felt bad for Washington State at times the other three games weren't against great opponents either so USC and they play UCLA they could potentially go in six go six to know and not really have any really great wins that's including a conference championship I feel like here's where I stand on it normally if Ohio State was out of the picture and you told me like you know an uh uh, eight and one Florida, seven, eight and one Texas A&M should get in over USC. I'd say, okay, if that's your criteria that since the Pac-12 got a late start and the other teams, it's not fair to the other teams that have had to play 10, 11, 12 games. But when you include Ohio State in that conversation, you have to include USC because Ohio State's in the same exact boat where we're only going to be seeing a small sample of size of them for six games. So I feel like you have to consider Ohio State and USC the same. Like, I feel like it's going against the criteria if Ohio State's able to make this picture and USC's not. And I understand USC faults faults and everything but um just going what do you what do you think jimmy where do you stand on all this i can see the merits behind the argument uh i think a, a bit of the difference is is kind of quality of win you know what i mean uh and, and i can see whoa, whoa, whoa. Can where... I, you say that you say that that's a good point you say that can i just interject real quick the teams ohio state has beaten nebraska penn state historically bad penn state Rutgers, a surging program and they're surging because they have two wins instead of none um, Indiana, good win. I'll give Indiana that. Michigan State, dumpster fire. I mean, are you kidding me? Northwestern, maybe the worst. One of the one of the real spots that I disagree with. I don't think they. I don't think they're the 14th best team in the nation. Just from I agree. Long, their wins are even worse. So, like, are USC are, are USC's quality of wins really that bad compared to that? Like, I guess not. I mean, Rutgers. We're comparing to like Rutgers and stuff. It's not like Ohio State has gone out and beaten top 10 teams every week. Is my point. They might have one better win in the advantage column for them i mean that's a fair point that you make uh but i i think that first of all you know usc certainly hasn't beaten a team like indiana all year or better yet faced one uh and most of these games i mean like you know three of the five are are really actually like total blowouts um and you include also like other factors that the CFP would look for which are kind of like reasonable almost like business decisions which is like star players and you know you have a player in justin fields who's a reasonable candidate in a full season and whatnot to be the heisman trophy winner or at least among the t- final three in new york uh in a given year like a dumb, that seems like a dumb criteria to me that seem it seems fair. like a, it seems like a dumb criteria but it it's kind of like supported by the past actions of the cfp uh so i think that should be taken into consideration and 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 reasonably speaking they've shown to be just outwardly a more dominant team whereas usc is you know i i I can understand considering them in the same breath i just couldn't understand a criteria under which usc could be chosen over them even Mm -hmm. in a six win scenario even if you know ohio state gets in as many games and also wins their conference and whatnot i mean they would have multiple ranked wins which usc probably won't have a single one uh they'd have much more dominant play on tape than USC would have had. And, and USC had those close calls at the beginning of the year against uh, a decent ASU team, but a pretty bad Arizona team. Like, it, it, it's hard to substantiate them really being compared to the same breath. Iowa State being that, that high. And I also think a team you can't rule out is Oklahoma. Like, I feel like the committee um, likes Oklahoma, like, almost as much as Jordan likes wearing Crocs. Just, like, one of those <laughs> things. They love putting Oklahoma – they love putting – 
putting Oklahoma in the playoff and them sitting there at 11 is, is kind of scaring me. We'll see what happens, man. But, you know, I, I just think, um, yeah, definitely seems like the most wide open year for the playoff. A lot can happen, man. None of this is locked up right now, especially with Notre Dame and Clemson. Notre Dame has the potential to knock out Clemson and that frees up a spot. We don't know what's going to happen with Ohio State's games, how many they're going to play but definitely the most wide open year. I'd love to see if you like, obviously, yeah, I don't know if USC is ready for that, but I'd love to see a group of five like USC is in the conversation. I'd love to see a group of five kind of included in that. But as far as the actual game, yeah, I, I agree with you. It was, uh, um, it was fun, man. I think I texted the group chat, you know, like this is what USC should be doing to pack 12 teams like Washington state, like on a regular basis, like based on recruiting, based on talent, like USC should become the Clemson of, of the Pac-12. And I feel like we got a glimpse of that maybe for one quarter and then it tapered off like only USC can. But for one quarter, did you guys kind of see that? It was – I. what amazed me is just like how efficient the offense was. Like it was seeming like every play we were getting – it was three and out after three and out in that first quarter. And then every time we Keaton had the ball, he was just hitting it on target. The run game wasn't really there. So it was just pass after pass, and Amon Ross St. Brown just looked unstoppable for for that first fifteen minutes, and it was great to see. I was I was jumping up and down in my in my living room, just like watching this and seeing how great. Even though it was a glimpse, yeah, but seeing how great USC can be, and I, I said it on the last podcast, but you know Colorado was supposed to be that game where USC really proved how good they were. That got canceled. And, uh, and then we were looking at Washington State, and they just really showed that they can they can do it. They just have to put together four quarters of it, um, and just you know get a good mix of running and and passing. And I think that they they can if they can show that, go from just the first quarter to a full game against UCLA against their rival, then I think it'll go a long way for whoever they do play in the Pac-12 championship. I think that a I, lot of the the dominance that we saw. And why it was so excited was because it was the offense and defense working together. Yes, we can talk all day about Amon Ross St. Brown having four touchdowns and a quarter. That was ridiculous. <laughs> Except it doesn't happen without the defense giving them the energy, giving them the field position, giving them the ball uh, over and over. There was also Isaiah Pullum out early in the game also had a dropped interception. I don't remember what the result of that uh, drive was. That could have been another turnover there. The defense, I'm pretty sure, leads the the FBS, like the entire FBS, in turnovers a game at three a game. That's that's ridiculous. I saw that on like Trojan Talk today or something. And maybe the defense isn't getting enough credit, but they're also allowing like those big chunks here and there. There's there's just not everything needs to work together for this team to be as dominant as a Clemson as you're saying in the ACC. I agree, and and I, I'm I'm also with Daniel. I I thought that in a lot of ways, the defensive effort, especially at the beginning of the game, was probably uh, more impressive, especially even just from the the energy standpoint, right? I, there were points even in the first half where I, as a USC fan, was like, okay, guys, let's, like, ease up <laughs> because I was almost starting to feel bad for Washington State. It was, you know, both teams were coming off a of COVID break or whatnot and playing on Sunday, which is natural, but they were the ones who had to make the, you know, couple hundred-mile journey down south, and it, it was starting to get a little pitiful there in, in, in the first quarter because the defense, it, it was a lot of what you said, Dan. It, it was avoiding those chunk plays, which have historically played USC in situations like that where they could have a sudden or sustained even offensive outburst, but not back it up by allowing long plays or long penalties or a lot of penalties. Um, and I thought that the energy was was – I mean, it was mind-blowing. It, it literally 
it blew both <laughs> both sides of the the Washington State team like off their game. Like even the defense who was sitting on the sideline was like, man, like you know, they're they're sending us back on the field after three or four plays, and and they have all the momentum right now, and and the, the offense absolutely capitalized on that. I couldn't agree more. And and the guy who seemed to really be supplying the most of that energy that you're talking about, the engine, if you will, was Talano Hufanga, man. One of the most special players that I've seen in the last five years. And let me tell you, that play, um, that interception that he made kind of with one hand, like tipping it up, like very tough catch, first of all. And then to then gather the ball, stay on his feet. It was very low to the ground. And then hurdle an entire defender and almost score was the best USC play I've seen in five years, the most athletic individual effort that I've seen. And I was watching this game at work. And when I saw that, I, I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of like went into the ground in a fetal position because it was so clean and, and so nice, but he's the guy supplying the energy, but you're so right, man. There's some guys on that defense, like OG brings the energy. Um, those guys, like the interesting thing about that defense that I kind of noticed in this game was like, they were happy to be on the field. They were not looking for their offense to bail them out. They were happy on the field because they knew that they might get a chance to touch the ball. And like the players were like legitimately like pissed when OG like fell to the ground and didn't score. Like that's a defense with attitude. They almost felt offensive, offensive in the way that they were playing and attacking in that game. I, I, I haven't really seen that. And, you know, I don't want to jump the shark too early on Todd Orlando, but um, he might have had some Orlando magic. Oh, no, that was worth Dan's joke. I don't know. We'll talk more, uh, hopefully recap the UCLA game if that doesn't get canceled or like wildfires take out the Coliseum or something. You never know. Um, but if that game does happen, we'll recap it more next week, talk about that. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with NFL in a second. Welcome back, everyone. Trevor forgot to introduce us earlier, but Jordan, Jimmy, Trevor, and I back on this podcast. In this segment, we will be talking about the NFC East, the NFC Least, as it's uh, most commonly known NFC as. East. There's not a lot of great teams here. Let's just put it at that. We have the Cowboys at three and nine, uh, the Eagles at three, eight, and one, who for some reason were the favorites to win this at uh, when they were, what, three, six, and one, something like that. Uh, the Washington football team, which will forever keep that name, uh, is five and seven, along with the Giants, who are in the lead right now at five and seven. Is there still the possibility that we get an under 500 team in the playoff like we so truly want? Yes. And I think, it, I think just because of how the NFC East has been this year, I think it has to happen. Um, I have my money on the Washington football team right now. But the Giants are playing really, really good football. That win against the Seahawks was, was I think it was in, in Seattle, if I'm um, not mistaken, really a huge game for them, honestly, beating a team that has been up and down recently, but it still has Russell Wilson and that great offense. Uh, but I, I think Alex Smith going from almost lost losing a leg to get, breaking a leg in a different sense. <laughs> I'm going to stop making jokes. Uh, <laughs> but – yeah, I, I'm going to go with Washington so far. I think I think they can finish it. Well, uh, you were right on that. They were playing in Seattle, and their their remaining games they're going to have uh, the Cardinals, uh, the Browns, the Ravens, and the Cowboys. So they could maybe that sounds like three losses. It sounds like at least three losses in there. I would agree yeah. with that. Washington's remaining games: the 49ers, the Seahawks in Washington, 
the Panthers and the Eagles. So I think Washington is going to be the, the, the runaway favorites here. I think that they probably pick a win against uh, the 49ers, Panthers, and Eagles. That puts them at uh, eight wins. They're, they'd be eight and eight. Uh, depriving us of that under 500 team in the playoffs. And you never, you never want to like lose games on purpose, but if you're a team in the NFC playoff hunt, you really want to try to get that, what would that, that five seed? Yeah. I, I play, cause you want to play the, the you want to play the NFC East in the first round, right? even though it's going to be on the road, most likely not going to have fans. So it's not going to matter, but what I guess. So if you're like the Seahawks or maybe even a team like the Cardinals or uh, the Bucks or even, um, like the Vikings or someone like that, you're going to want to try to play a team from the NFC East because in the playoff football, you'll probably, you'll probably end up winning. Here's the deal, man. Here's the deal. This year, the Jonas, the Jonas brothers have come out with an album. They've been all over the place. Miley Cyrus just came out with an album. I believe I was looking on the web today and I Carly said they were rebooting. No, so they, they are just, indeed. I did. Now, see what, that. Have, what do all of these events have in common? Does anyone know what any of these events have in common? Yes, they were good in 2007. They were good in 2009, and Colt McCoy is going to lead the Giants to a Super Bowl. He was the best quarterback in college football in 2009. He's back with a vengeance for the Giants. They look dangerous. They beat Seattle. No one's even talking about what they did to Russell Wilson. If they get that matchup again in the playoffs, uh, it's going to be over for Pete Carroll and company. The Giants are coming, man. They're my pick to win it. They, they, they look the best right now. They have the offense. I mean, with, with Colt McCoy, anything's possible. Maybe they'll even make the Super Bowl, and then Garrett Gilbert, he'll get hurt, and then Garrett Gilbert, current backup for the Panthers, will have to come in for him just like he did in the 2009 National Championship game against Alabama. But I'm, I'm all in on the Giants and this Colt McCoy story, man. Jimmy, I see you simmering over there. I know you're, you're, you're trying to pull for the Eagles right now to, to come out and win this whole thing outright, right? Um, not entirely, uh, not, not particularly partial to the Eagles. I think that they have a rancid fan base. Um, but I, I, I think that we are kind of overrating in, in some ways, the capacity of the Washington football team. I think it's extremely realistic that they go two and two in their remaining stretch with a loss of Seahawks. And I, I wouldn't bank on them to win all three games between the Niners, Panthers and Eagles with two of those games being on the road. Um, so I, I think it's a very realistic shot that we do get that under 500 uh, playoff entrant. And, you know, lest we forget, the Night of the Beast Quake was, in fact, the 7-9 and nine Seahawks playing against a very, very good uh, New Orleans Saints team. So anything, truly anything is possible, even if a team enters the playoffs as 7-9. and nine. Um, And, you know, judging by their recent performances, I wouldn't necessarily bet against the Washington football team in a one-game uh, stand for their season the Indianapolis Colts they're eight and four right above them the Miami Dolphins at eight and four and then right below them you have the the Vegas Raiders and Baltimore Ravens both at seven and five Jimmy <laughs> I know you want to get in on your Ravens a little bit here who who is going to get these out of these four teams I, I think that it's pretty much down to them Jordan might have a little whoa, bit of an whoa, argument whoa, whoa, Jordan whoa. might have a little bit of an argument yeah, let, me, let me say something I was it was watching Sunday football because I was really pulling for this for the Jets obviously for Sammy D but also I need I needed the Raiders to lose and also I need the Colts to lose and they both won thanks for that Deshaun Watson that fumble right near the goal line um but my Pats are we're six and six uh it's it's every week Cam Newton says he needs to play better he wasn't playing better and now he actually he only he somehow we won 45-0 he threw for less than 75 yards and somehow we still have put up 45 points but we can still do it. We have to beat the we have to win out 
and we need some help from we need the Dolphins to completely implode, and I think we can do it. Starts with the Rams. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Patriots because I was trying to rack my mind and think about like the least compelling sport stories in sports, and I think that top of the list would be hearing Patriots fans clamor for making the playoffs. Um, that that's hardly something that really touches my heartstrings. Um, so while I think that the Patriots realistically have a, a, a mathematical shot, uh, I don't think that this is the year and they just have shown kind of week in week out to actually not be a consistent football team. I agree. Um, I agree. Games against the Rams and the bills are going to be hard wins for them as well. Uh, I, I, don't know. I, I know. And it's every, every week or when we play well, you hear the announcers talking about the games that we should have won. We should have beat the Texans, you know, competitive games against the Seahawks and 49ers too. So it's, it is what it is. It's just, we, we had that losing streak in, in October that really was just bad for us. So I wouldn't be too mad if you don't make it, but we just come played such good football the last few weeks. It would suck for it just to come down to us missing out by one spot, but the Ravens are so, so team. So if we can jump, we can jump then. We just need some help from the, from the teams that are playing the Dolphins, namely. Trevor, Dolphins, Colts, Raiders, Ravens. If you want to throw the Patriots in there for some uh, Jordan reason, uh, trying to get them on your good side before the holidays coming up, who out of those four teams do you really see uh, sliding in and getting that uh, those last two playoff spots out of the five of those teams? I definitely like the Dolphins, man. I feel like they're playing good football. They don't even ask, ask Tua to do that much. Um, and, and really their defense has, has been incredible. Like they haven't given up over 20 points in the last three games. This little, uh, they're actually on a five game, six game winning streak. Is that right? They're on a six game winning streak right now. Maybe even longer than that. I mean, I feel like they're just playing among the best football defensively right now. I think Brian Flores is a great coach and just looking at the rest of their schedule, I think winnable, probably not going to beat the chiefs, uh, but winnable, winnable games the rest of the way out against the Patriots Raiders and maybe a bills team kind of relaxing uh, on week 17. So I like them, man. I like the Dolphins. Um, yeah. That Dolphins team it has a turnover in every single game since I, I think week one they didn't have. But since then, uh, a turnover in every single week, that's always going to be uh, great for your defense. Yeah, the Patriots seem to have less margin for error already with those six losses. If I'm able to, you know, provide another option, I think that the Ravens have a very realistic shot of cracking that wild card formation. If you look at their upcoming schedule, I think that they have a, a reasonably winnable game coming up against those very Browns. But even if that should go haywire, they should take three of the next four uh, with two home games back-to-back against the Jags and New York football giants before taking on a Joe Burrow-less Cincinnati Bengals team uh, down there on the Ohio River. I, I think it's hard to foresee a circumstance, even this kind of, you know, middle – class loaded uh afc for a 10 win team to not make the playoffs in a seven team scenario especially considering that there's no uh total joker uh entries in the divisional uh winner's bracket like there is in the nfc east jimmy as as a ravens fan and say they do get that seven and say something happens where the steelers go down to two how would you feel about a two seven matchup against the steelers in pittsburgh i would feel so unbelievably confident in the Ravens' ability to find a way to win that game. I mean, you can't convince me that in a game in which we play practice squad slash signed off the street players, uh, we have a critical touchdown in the end zone dropped by a guy in Luke Wilson who is an actor. 
um, and, and not a football player. Uh, you can't convince me if that's a five-point margin with RG3 and then Trace McSorley coming in and our top two running backs out and, and countless other defensive stalwarts uh, not playing in that game. You can't convince me that the Ravens wouldn't have at least a good shot. And you have to consider that was also a game in Pittsburgh, right? Uh, so I, I think that even if the Ravens make it at seven uh, or six and have to play a good team, be that the Steelers or someone else, uh, it, it, it's hard to count against count the Ravens out at least completely in any kind of one game standoff. Well, Trevor Jordan got to pour his heart out a little bit emotionally speaking for his Patriots. The Falcons are only two games out of that seven seed in the NFC. Do you, do you have any faith in them? Screw them, bro. That's enough talk for NFL for now. We will be back after a commercial break for final memos. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's time for a fan favorite segment that we've never done before, Final Memos. Uh, We're going to go over the worst thing for this one, the worst thing we saw in in sports this week. Take it away, Dan. Happy Hanukkah to you, by the way, man. Happy Hanukkah to all you guys, too, all the maybe few listeners out there. Uh, What happened, which I believe, and I think all of us would agree, is the worst thing we've seen in sports this week, uh, is the Jets squandering away Sam Darnold's first victory of the season. If you're a Jets fan, sure, you can be happy that you continue the tank. But if you're a fan of good USC football, you see Sam Darnold sitting there. He hasn't got a win since he got mono, I don't think. Greg Williams' play call to send a cover zero blitz, I believe that's what it was, uh, in, the, in the final seconds when Henry Ruggs just ran loose. We all believe Greg Williams just wanted to go home, right? I, th- I think so. He wanted, he wanted just to get back to his family. He knew he was going to be fired. And I didn't even notice it was an all-out blitz until I watched the replay and saw it on Twitter. I Because I was just so amazed by the play. But that was seemingly going to be the last play of the game. And he rushes seven, maybe eight players at Derek Carr. And Derek Carr, he even said after, he said when he saw that, he was smiling. He knew all he had to do was just throw it up. And there was not going to be much help from the Jets secondary. But And as a Pats fan, I, I wanted the, the Raiders to lose too. And I wanted to see Sam get his first win of the season. But it's just that was just embarrassing well and before you guys get back in on this i, I do have to say one thing the the very play before that nelson Aguilar was also wide open and Derek Carr <laughs> overthrew him uh i i think that's why he knew that hey there's, there's a chance we can hit this home run ball if we just try it again uh, rather than getting a couple more chunk yards and throwing up a hail mary you know i i think that the best way to experience big plays uh a lot of people say it's you know to be in the stadium uh, maybe you're watching on TV, you know, surrounded by family. I think, and this is how I, I experienced it, actually. I think the best way to experience a play is hearing your dad or, or some other family member or some friend being so irate with what they have seen and what they just saw occur on the field of play that they scream about it in a different room, come into your room and then scream about it to you. That's how I, I uh, originally experienced the play. But the interesting thing is I – there are some concepts at play that make sense, just not the entire picture, right? So uh, as an example, the Ravens had an end of the half play that they were defending a Hail Mary similarly from a similar part of the field. And they did the polar opposite. Instead of rushing six or seven, they rushed two. And within the fingertips length of uh, one CD lamb, it would have been a touchdown that would have kind of swung the game. Uh, and swung the momentum at halftime. So I understand the concept of blitzing. It just, if it, if a team is at least at or beyond half 
you know, midfield. He, how do you possibly think that your defenders are going to have enough time to disrupt Derek Carr? Like, they're not going to get to him before the receivers get into the end zone or at least are close enough for you to throw the ball up. It just doesn't make any sense until you consider, wait, this is the Jets, right? Uh, Mina Kind said it brilliantly on Twitter. I'm pretty sure all of you saw the tweet where she diagrammed a play and wrote just a big tank uh, on a picture of the field and said that that's exactly what the, the Jets were after, which I think it was. And it, it's almost impossible to think that this wasn't almost something that was called upon from from the Jets' heavens that said, hey, Greg Williams, you're a longtime defensive coordinator. Lest we forget, you tried to kill offensive players at one point in your career. Um, so I know this is going to seem weird, but we're going to ask you to essentially abandon every thought that you had of how to play defense in order to lose this game. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I, I can't help but think that the Jets' brass had something to do with it. Well, Jimmy understands the concept of blitzing. He does not understand the concept of wearing a shirt. Another man who right now is not understanding that concept is Trevor Denton. Trevor, get in on this. Dude, I wanted to see what this was all about, and the water's fine, man. Jordan's been shirtless. Jimmy's been shirtless. This is nice, podcasting while shirtless. And and you seem to indicate that maybe, you know, it's the Jets' fault, man. This is one dude. Like, this is – this whole Greg Williams thing is like when you get fired and you like steal the printer, you like you light something on fire. He's going out. Wait, what? It's like when you get fired from a job and you like steal the erasers and the printer because you just want to get back at that job. That's what Greg Williams is doing. He wasn't going to go down without a fight. And this was him going down in like the most FU middle finger type of way possible. You, you never been fired from a job and you want to light the place on fire. I mean, that's what Greg Williams did here. Totally agree. When I was fired from the I called my boss a but that's what Greg Williams was doing is my point. He, he, this was intentional. He knew he was going to get fired, like you guys were saying. So he thought, why not go out um, on my own terms? And it's pretty messed up to do that to a football team. These guys are still trying to win games. Poor Frank Gore. I mean, he's 94 years old. Like, he just wants to play with his son next year. Like, I mean, and, and it's heartbreaking to see, man. I was going to say he basically, like, left, left a big, massive poop in the center of the conference room before he left. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, you you get you get fired that 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 Monday night. You wait till everyone leaves. You sneak into the conference room Monday night, and then you leave a poop for them to see Tuesday. That's essentially what he did. But at the same time, he also left a fruit basket for them because they're close to being the number one pick. Is okay. Wait, wait. I do need to ask before we get out of here. Is, is <laughs> you beat me to it, Trevor? Is the fruit basket covered in poop, or is it two separate things? The fruit basket has poop in it. Now I know what I'm getting you guys for Christmas. On that note, on that note, study hall episode four. Uh, be careful this week when you get fruit baskets sent for maybe like a loved one. Be careful to check for poop. Maybe Jordan, Jordan might have pooped in it. Like that's all I'm gonna say. All right.